I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Hi, I'm Maris Kreisman, and I'm so thrilled to be joined today by Vendela Vida um, to have a chat for the Miami Book Fair, which I wish we could be at IRL, but next year. Um, Vendela, would you like to, to start us off by reading from We Run the Tides? Sure. Thanks, Maris. Thank you to Miami Book Fair for having us here. This is the first paragraph of We Run the Tides. We are 13, almost 14, and these streets of Seacliff are ours. We walk these streets to our school, perched high over the Pacific, and we run these streets to the beaches, which are cold, windswept, full of fishermen and freaks. We know these wide streets and how they slope, how they curve toward the shore, and we know their houses. We know the towering brick house where magician Carter the Great lived. He had a theater inside, and his dining room table rose up to a trap door. We know that Paul Kantner from Jefferson Starship lived, or maybe still does live, in the house of the long swing that hangs above the ocean. We know that swing was for China, the daughter he had with Grace Slick. China was born the same year we were, and whenever we pass the house, we look for China on the swing. We know the imposing salmon-colored house that had a party at which mass robbers appeared. When a female guest wouldn't relinquish her ring, they cut off her finger. We know where our school tennis instructor lives, dark blue tutor decorated cobwebs every Halloween, where the school's dean of admission lives, white house with black gate. Both are women, both are wives. We know where the doctors and lawyers live and where the multi-generation San Franciscans live and the kind of people whose family names are associated with mansions and hotels in other parts of the city. And most important, because we are 13 and attend an all girls school, we know where the boys live. That's the first paragraph. Love it. Um, Vendela, reading the book really brought me back to a time in my life when I thought I knew everything mm-hmm. and actually knew just about nothing. Tell me about writing about adolescent girls. Well, you know, it's funny, Maris, I didn't start off wanting to write about adolescent girls or planning to write about adolescent girls. This book, believe it or not, started 
the day after Trump won the election. And I started writing a book about lies and lying. And it started as a nonfiction book. And this, um, after about a year of working on a nonfiction book and studying the work of Cicela Bach and other philosophers who talked about the, the way that lies can spread like pollution throughout a culture, I started thinking I wanted to write a fictional account. And I thought, who better to embody shape-shifting and lying than adolescent girls? And so I um, started writing one day just in that first paragraph. I started, we are, you know, we are 13. And it just kind of took off from there. So I didn't, like, again, I didn't mean to. It probably helped that at the time I had a, a daughter who I think was just turning into a teenager. And so I was seeing that kind of empowerment, that knowledge, you know, the confidence that you were talking about. I was seeing that exuded in her and her friends. So that probably had something to do with it as well. And tell me about the decision to start with we, the the um, virgin suicides tent, so we call it. First person plural. Um, I, again, I didn't really plan to start that way. It just, um, you know, is you know, as you just show up every day writing and you see what comes out. And I just started writing we, and it made sense to me. And the, start, the second I started using the first person plural and using we, I knew at some point that um, because I was writing about four girls and two specifically, but four, a group of four girls, I knew at some point there'd be some sort of rupture because there always is at that age with girls. And I knew that um, the we would turn into an I, which it does um, shortly after the opening section. Because yeah. um, main character Yulabi gets ostracized from her friends, and so then the we becomes I. I I was trying to go back and think. Like I, I feel like there's something that we say a lot is that adolescent girls in particular are so mean, and <laughs> I don't know. Do you think that's specific to <laughs> um, that age uh, and group? Or do you think um, we kind of romanticize, I guess, a little bit about? Yeah, there's the whole Mean Girls um, yeah. you know, theme, obviously, and movie. But I, you know, I don't, I don't know if it comes from meanness. I come, think it comes from protectiveness. Like you really are so obsessed with your friends when you're that age, and your friends are everything. They're your world, and you're very worried about your world being taken away from you. You know, you're already on this threshold of from childhood to adulthood, and you're so scared of things being taken from you that I think the protectiveness sometimes. Um, and who's in and who out can get translated into meanness, but sometimes it really is coming from just a place of like not wanting things to change, right? You see the whole thing ahead of you. You see like coming over like a wave and you're just like, I want this to stay right now. I want my friends to always be my friends. I don't want anything to ever alter. So I think the meanness manifests itself from that. And, and you do such a good job about talking about wanting and and the girls wanting to want and wanting to want love and knowing that they're on the precipice of something right um and and what a strange place to to be in as a person right wanting everything to change and nothing yeah exactly i think that there is that you know you, there is that sense that's why this definitely want the girls to be 13 going on 14 because i think that's a very specific time and it's before you're going to high school too and your friends are going to different schools and you're just you're at this and you're seeing, you know, some girls are maturing physically and, you know, socially faster than you are, or, you know, you're, it depends who you are. Obviously everyone's maturing at different rates suddenly. And yes. so people you've had, you know, been known for years, you look at them and suddenly they're a different person. And I noticed that even with my, my own kids, like I'll just look at my kids' friends sometimes I'm like, oh my gosh, that person is now an adult. You know, they were <laughs> yesterday, I was like making them, you know, serving them ice cream and now they're, you know, with ice cream with sprinkles. And now they're like, you know, now they don't, they look like one of my friends. They don't look like a kid anymore. 
And it's so cruel that it doesn't happen all at the same time. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. You know, it's, it's, um, it, it is always staggered. And I think that's the thing that happens too. That's what I wanted to do with the book is show how what happens with Eulaby is actually a late developer and her best friend, Rhea Fabiola, suddenly develops um, into a young, very, you know, alluring woman overnight. And so there's that difference in that chasm that she has to, she has to negotiate. Yeah. And, and the other part, of course, uh, about this puzzle is that um, the book is set in uh, this part of the book is set between 1984 and 1985. Mm -hmm. um, tell me about writing historical fiction, <laughs> I guess we have to go. Um, oh, God. And um, okay. kind of, well, yeah, I, I will say this much about it. I didn't I didn't try to look, I literally didn't look back at any of my journals or anything from my, from that time. I kept journals pretty religiously, but I didn't want this to be my story or about my childhood. I wanted it to be, um, you know, about a character. And so I, I made sure that I was using references from the time, but again, I didn't like Google like 1984, like what was happening at the time. You know, I just tried to think about kind of like, you know, daydream a little bit about all the images that would come to my head. It was amazing all the things that came to mind and many things didn't make it into the books, just like the feeling of those jelly shoes that everyone used to wear and the imprints they would leave on your feet or the music we would listen to or the importance of making mixtapes. And again, these are details that didn't make it in, but I feel like I just like tried to immerse myself back in that, in that time period. But again, without trying to like insert details, they would just come up sometimes. Like I'd be thinking, okay, she, She's wearing sneakers. She's wearing tree torns or K-Swiss or whatever she is. Um, and the, the shoes, the footwear always helps me. Whatever I'm writing, I Founding. feel like the footwear, thinking about the character's footwear always helps me figure out who, who they are. Love that. Um, and one of the things I thought about a lot from, from that time was the idea of stranger danger and the idea of that there could be some random weirdo on the street who mm -hmm. could lure you into his car or, mm -hmm. and, and that that is the primary danger and that school children must learn to uh, run from that. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of stranger danger. I know I've been talking about those friends a lot too, how now it's just, it's maybe not the same either because their cell phones or people are more in packs or something. But I feel like when we were younger, there's a lot more like going to friends' houses on your own or just mm -hmm. like, you were just taught, you know, you're right. You were taught very early on about just like watching out for, for strangers. And I think that also coincides with the time when you're also really excited, especially if you go to an all girls school, like the girls do in this book, um, you're excited about meeting strange, you know, boys you don't know. Right. So it's like, so it's, you know, younger strangers, there's just like a certain threshold where over a certain age they're you know, they're no longer like interesting strangers. They're, they're strange, you know, stranger danger. Um, but that is something that I feel has, um, there just used to be a lot more independence, right? So you could just, you would have to be, I guess, you know, we were told a lot about Stranger Danger, but the other thing I was exploring with this book is that we weren't, we didn't have the vocabulary to talk about a lot of things when we were growing up, like the way that I feel that young um, yeah. teenagers do now. So I feel like even there's a scene in the book where um, one of the characters is basically sexually molested by like an older boy, but she never mentions it. And that was a deliberate choice um, that I made that she wouldn't talk to anyone about it because I really felt that was true to the era that she wouldn't have had the vocabulary even to know what had happened to her um, and also because I feel like you know especially at that age and any age actually I feel like sex is kind of passed along like if you one of your friends is being sexually active that kind of just gets passed along like a secret you know I wanted this whole 
atmosphere of like secrets and rumors being passed around and circulated in the same way that those things can be circulated. So can like sexual advancement or even a hairstyle. You know, it cracks me up sometimes when I think back at how someone in school would like, get a certain haircut. You know, they go to LA and come back with an asymmetrical haircut. And then like the next week, you know, someone else had an asymmetrical haircut and just kind of got passed passed around unofficially. And so that's what I, I wanted to think about as well. Just the whispers that kind of went through the to the wind. Yeah, and there, there, there really was no other forum for anything aside from whispers, which is right. something I, I have to remember sometimes. Like, um, your journal was your journal; <laughs> only you read it. Hopefully, unless like yeah. your bad siblings. <laughs> right. Um, and, and well, then there wasn't social media. There wasn't like you know all the Instagram. Obviously, all these things that were just making things happen faster. It really was like rumors. Yeah. Um. And then another another big part of of the setting of your book is that it takes place in Seacliff, mm-hmm. um, which you have Eula B. say is one of the first San Francisco neighborhoods to have underground power lines, so as not to disrupt the view of the bridge. Mm-hmm. And you get like a, a really good um, metaphor, perhaps, for um, what people in the neighborhood do and don't want to see. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that there is this. Yeah, every there's a line. Everything, everything ugly is hidden in, mm-hmm. in Seacliff, and I think that's you know that is the metaphor. And there's even the way that it's the way that I was trying to get to. I was thinking a lot about the structure that all these alleyways in the back, so that the cars can't even be seen because you know, parked cars interfere with the view as well. So they're like all hidden, and everything is kind of like a, you know, it's all about the outward presentation and and the inner of the inner workings of the way the whole neighborhood functions are all hidden and disguised or like at least put in the back alleyway literally and i i um i googled and mm-hmm. found a business insider piece about seacliff now mm-hmm. and it mentions real estate deals and it shows photos and it is very clear that the people that you've written about could no longer afford to the live as they yeah. are. Well, that is the you know, irony of a lot of places, but I think in San Francisco in particular, that no one can afford to to live in the house they grew up in or the neighborhood they grew up in, even. Um, I know um I know a couple people maybe who live in the neighborhood they grew up in, but it's very it's it's very rare. Um, and maybe it's because they inherited their parents' home, but even so, not so very often. You know, it's um it's a very different world right now, obviously with Silicon Valley and just the extraordinary wealth coming in that I feel like there are different neighborhoods that are really about um, where everyone who lives there is in finance or everyone's in tech or everyone's in a certain industry. And I do feel like Sea Cliff, um, anyway, I don't want to go into specifics of which neighborhood is which, because that's a little too inside baseball probably for the Miami Book Fair. If it was a San Francisco Book Fair, maybe that'd be more interesting. But I think that there are these pockets where you find people gathering and, and, and taking over these neighborhoods. Yeah, and um, I think I had to think about relative wealth in a way that feels like Ulibi is just learning about people having different financial situations, mm-hmm. like becoming real to her. Well, there's that, and there's also the fact that her parents are basically, you know, immigrants to the city, to that neighborhood. You know, her father grew up in the Mission District, which is really, um, which especially in that time when her father had been growing up, was definitely a very um, poor neighborhood um, and the immigrant neighborhoods. A lot of um, a lot of people from other countries, um, from Germany, Hungary, um, 
and now it's like a you know a hipster neighborhood. At that time, it was a very it was a very struggling neighborhood. And her mother comes from Sweden, and so they're kind of she's there's a whole sense of like who's been in San Francisco for a long time, and that's why there's a reference in the passage I wrote to the people whose whose mansions or houses are you know who's who live in Seacliff but who have hotels and mansions in other parts of the city named after them, and so there's a sense of like history and who's a fourth generation San Franciscan and who's you know and who's new, like in any city. Yeah, no one in Seacliff in, in your book in the eighties is suffering there's definitely definitely not suffering yeah i mean maybe they're suffering not suffering and you know they're suffering in their own way but definitely not yes yes yes. a lack of finances yeah and talk to me about san francisco as a city in that time because i i feel like um my impression and and from the book i feel like there's this push and pull between the countercultural movements of the sixties and seventies, and then the leftover hippies who are still on the beach in the eighties when everything is supposed to be clean. Right. And color is supposed to be separate and separated. And yeah, it's like um, different, different color palette, even from the seventies leftover. Um, I do feel like, and I try to put this in the book as well. There's a sense when you grew up in the eighties that you've missed um, in San Francisco, that you missed everything great that came before it. You missed, you know, it's like a, always describe it's like being a arriving at a party too late and you know the second you walk in the door and you smell like all the beer smell and that you see someone passed out and you hear like you just a bad song on repeat or something you just like you know you've missed the whole thing the pretzels are soggy the you know cheese is like <laughs> I don't know all over the floor and you're just like oh my god I missed the party I missed it I what was I doing and there was definitely that sense growing up in San Francisco in the 80s that you had missed everything important everything culturally relevant and you, there was no way to catch up, right? You couldn't like go back in time. And there's a character in the book, Gentle, who does try to go back in time and really still dresses like she's in the 70s and um, does the drugs that they did in the 70s and and that she's teased for that as, um, at the same time that everyone kind of understands why she's doing it to some extent. You know, everyone, everyone feels that same nostalgia, that sense that they missed out and something that they can't ever chase. Um, but she is, um, she's definitely the, the 70s figure in the book, nostalgic figure. I love how the girls discover um, her list of <laughs> things that changed from the 70s and 80s. Oh, 70s, 80s. <laughs> and why the 70s were clearly better. Right, Gentle has this list. I can't remember exactly what's on it, but she was saying she has a list in her room and the girls go sneak into her room and, and see that she says in the 70s, it was like, you know, about like long hair and bell bottoms. And then in the 80s, it's not about that. and the, in the 70s, it's about better music. She has a whole list of pros and cons, and the, the 80s does not fare well by her estimation. I mean, and yet, and I mean, you do such a good job of making me nostalgic for for that time. In terms of, I mean, I, I think one of the most fun and exciting parts of the book is when Yulabi goes to a psychedelic furs concert. <laughs> um, Thing. I, you know, it was funny. I wasn't sure. That wasn't one of the fun things too, is trying to think what kind of music, you know, in addition to what kind of shoes everyone would be wearing, what kind of music everyone would listen to. And the Psychedelic Furs um, wasn't a band I was necessarily into in that time period, but I thought that she might have been. Um, and so she goes to a concert with this boy that she likes, Keith, and it's just an eye-opening experience for her, just about, it's just, you know, that feeling of like, 
all the buildup to the concert. She goes shopping in the hate, you know, to go um, thrift store shopping and she gets this dress that she thinks is really cool. And her, this au pair who has been kicked out of her own family, not kicked out, she's left her own family, the Swedish au pair because um, of something that happened to the father in the family. And she goes and stays with Eulaby and her family, not as an au pair, but just kind of as like a, you know, refugee from, from the au pair lifestyle. Um, she, um, her, you know, this au pair helps her get a bowler hat because Eulaby is really obsessed with the unbearable lightness of being. And she knows there's a bowler hat in that and she doesn't know what it looks like exactly. So there's all this preparation to get ready for this concert, which then lasts just, you know, for a very short amount of time. Um, and so I thought that was a lot. I want to put that in the book too, that sense that when you're that age, so much of it, like there are weeks and weeks preparing, preparing for like a very, very um, small slice of time. And so she goes to the Psychedelic Bird concert with her boyfriend or you know, boy that she likes and um and she's it's a, it's a new world for her and also there's something that's funny these things that happen when you're writing that you don't really think about like the themes so there was um he's there, the boy she likes his mother washes his clothes with tide detergent and he doesn't she doesn't dilute it the way that um that Eulaby's mom does which again is a small very you know, a small class thing, but I want it to be like just to show that, you know, everyone's frugal, you know, their Julie's family is more frugal than this boy's family is. And so every time they're turning, like Richard Butler does in the in the video for the, in the song that's playing, she can smell this whiff of Pied. And <laughs> it was really interesting because I was a German translator who brought it to my attention. She's like, oh, I love that, you know, the Tide and the we went on the Tide. And I, of course, I hadn't thought about that, but I think there's something really fun about, um, about the details that come up that you don't realize why they why you put them in there. I'm sure there was some reason I put it in there, why I was tied and not some other detergent. Um, and I just like that, that comes up. And when a German translator or another translator points something out to you, it's always really fun. Discover your holiday love story with Audible. Listen to exclusive stories, original podcasts, and more. Enjoy brand new Audible originals like Hold Me Closer, Tony Danzig. There's something about Mary and Christmas podcast. Woof. Keep the fire going with romance favorites like Eight Winter Nights and Nick and Noel's Christmas Playlist. Tis the season to get cozy. Go to audible.com slash holiday romance. Listen now only from Audible. Yeah. And in terms of the small details, um, Eulaby is named for a miniaturist, Eulaby uh, mm -hmm. Dix. Tell me, tell me how you came to her. Oh, how came to Eulaby Dix? I, it's funny, I had to drive um, my son's field trip many years ago, and I, I'm sure everyone has that point in their lives when they're always being asked like to drive on a field trip, and you're just so tired, especially as a writer, people just assume you don't really have a job, right? So you're the one that always like, are you sure you can't drive? And so there was a, a retrospective a couple, several years ago um, at the Palace of Fine Arts in the city, and they what they did was something very cool. They did this exhibit where they, Recreate, recreated the art that had been at the World's Fair and the Pan America um, World's Fair. And they really got, they, it was incredible, got all the paintings from that time. And so I, you know, I drove on this field trip kind of reluctantly, but then I um, I saw that they, this portrait of this woman, I went closer and you know, saw on the plaque that her name was Eula B. Dix. And I thought that was such an interesting name. And then I thought I have to use this name somewhere, if only because then <laughs> taking a day off from writing to do this field trip won't feel like a waste of time. So that was basically to justify the fact that I took a day off of work um, to drive um, some third or fourth grade boys to, to the museum. Yeah. That's funny. And, and so, yes, Eula B. is not you. 
but she does share some characteristics mm-hmm. with you, she said. Like, well, tell me yeah. about her Swedish family. And- I was like, Swedish family, so yeah, so I'm half Swedish too, and I felt disingenuous to try to just make up a different, like, nationality. Um, I, you know, I will say the one thing that we definitely have in common, I always find it really hard to write someone else's sense of humor. So I think with most of my characters, whoever they are, if they're a 13-year-old or um, when I was, you know, writing just whenever, whatever age I'm writing about or whatever gender, I think that the characters usually um, share the sense of humor. Because it's really hard as a, you know, a writer to think, I don't find this funny, but they would find this funny, right? That doesn't really work. Um, so we definitely have that in common. And then the other thing we have in common, just growing up with, yeah, strong cultural um, setting. And what I mean by that is that there's, in Yulabi's life, there's a whole group of women that her mom is friends with who are from Sweden and they are part of like kind of just an extended family in a way. And they're always at the house and they have these stitch and bitch meetings, which are sewing meetings that then um, eventually devolve or evolve, depending on how you look at it hey, to the bitch and bitch where they just you know cut together and gather and, and complain and gossip. And in some ways they're, they're leading a parallel life to what's going on with the girls, right? The girls are also like, you know, bitching and gossiping, but like they're, you know, the parents are doing it too, even though they're supposed to be so much more mature. And so that's what's happening with the bitch and bitch meetings and Eula B really loves the women in the bitch and bitch even though she can you know they've to her they're just all like aunts um or like second mothers um and so she's it's just a part of her of her life and also you know because she gets ostracized from her friends she definitely seeks comfort and you know to some extent from the Swedish um members of the bitch and bitch and also the Swedish au pair who comes to live with them after being after leaving the, her assigned family yeah um and it's Yulabi's um, being ostracized is is interesting to me because it goes so quickly from the enormous confidence she starts out, even in the paragraph that you read, mm-hmm. running this town, the name of the book, <laughs> running the tides, um, and and that can change so quickly. I think it can, you know, that's the thing. It, it, everything can flip. And also the confidence that she has is also that sense that you have. I mean, I feel like these these girls, if you saw them with your adult eyes, would not look the same way that they believe they look. <laughs> they definitely have this inflated sense of confidence of how they're presenting themselves and how they're presenting themselves to the world. And I think it'd be really fun to actually have a different, you know, different lens. If it was told through many perspectives, I would have showed them through a different lens and showed like what they actually look like, which is a bunch of 13 year old girls who, you know, so, um, but I think that confidence is part of being that age. And, and tell me a little bit about um, writing Maria Fabiola through Eulabie's eyes, because mm-hmm. one of the things I noticed, you know, something happens to Maria Fabiola. She, she mm-hmm. goes missing for a while mm-hmm. and Eulabie doesn't really think about like, Maria Fabiola's state of mind, or if, if there could be something seriously wrong in her life. I think that at this point, she, um, there's a way, the same way that rumors and gossip is passed around in the book, and with, you know, both with the younger, with the girls and with the, the Swedish bitch and bitchers, there's also this sense that lies are passed around. So there, um, early in the book, uh, Maria Fabiola, who's been Fabiola's best friend since they were in kindergarten, um, comes over to her house and Yulabi tells this lie and Maria Fabiola looks at her with new eyes and is kind of like, oh, wow, I didn't know you could lie so well. And so it's actually, you know, the irony is that Yulabi starts, is the first one to lie um, 
out of the two. And then Maria Fabiola really takes on that lie and like runs with it, you know, runs with like lying in general and fabricating things. And um, I think because Yulabi sees that she's such a good liar and sees that she's like trying on new identities, she doesn't worry about Maria Fabiola in the same way that everyone else is worried about her. And the news, you know, the news gets involved. Um, and I want the news to be a big part of it because, you know, the, watching the evening news, the morning news um, in the 80s was like, the, you know, equivalent of the internet, right? That's where you got all your information from. So everyone's worried about Maria Fabiola, except for Eulabi, who just knows her best friend so well that does, she doesn't believe that she's actually encountered any harm. And it could be also because she has Maria Fabiola on a strange pedestal. Well, she just doesn't think anything could happen to her, right? She just thinks she's too clever and witty um, and kind of immune to any any disaster happening. Even though when you you set up very early that all four girls were present in the home the night one of the girls' fathers kills himself, mm-hmm. and that looms in the background even as we're watching these fabulous uh, mm-hmm. lies uh, get spread. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I definitely think that there's also a sense that the girls have that like danger happens with the adults, you know, they just see this, like this, they really think they're like, these two worlds. And that's like the night when things actually blend and something happens. Um, I won't give anything away, but um, where the two worlds intersect. Yeah. Yes. Um, and, and then there are even um, gradations of the kinds of lying that it seems like Eulabi will do versus what Maria Fabiola will do. Right. Um, I, I, tell me about Eulabi when decision, Eulabi's decision when when she doesn't want to lie. Um, so it, that's more toward the end of the book, right? When she just okay. Like, well, oh, so yeah. I, okay. I don't want to get too far. I don't want okay. to get too far ahead of that. But I do think I will say something about lying in general because obviously I had to think about it a lot first. Yes. When I the original and. In, in, Incarnation of this book, which is a nonfiction. Um, I do feel like, you know, I was thinking so much about lying and how I I think it's actually part of adolescence in a, to a large degree, of, as I've been saying, and part of, you know, shape shifting is, is normal. And I actually don't even mind it so much in adolescence. I think the true, the true, except, you know, if my daughter's lying to me, I would be very upset. But, <laughs> I, um, but I think that's just all part of it, right? So what you all do is you try on different, different personalities and different personas for yourself. Um, I think the, the trick to being an adult, not the trick, that sounds like very deceptive too, but I think the way that you know you're adult is when you stop lying to yourself and to others about who you are and you come to terms with who you who you actually are. And that's something I was thinking about a lot when I was writing this book about what being an adult actually means. If you're thinking about what being an adolescent means or what being a kid means, what does adult being an adult mean? And to me, it means when you realize that you have to stop lying to everyone and to yourself about about who you really, who you are and what your beliefs are. Tell me about the process of writing characters who might not know important things about themselves and how you can convey that to the reader while still leaving them somewhat in the dark. That is a really good question. And I try to show a little bit is how while the girls are so confident, they, there are things they really don't understand and they know there's a whole world awaiting them. You know, they have a whole sense that they want, they know that love awaits them and they know like falling in love awaits them, but they don't know what it is yet. And so I try to show that also, I had fun with it with, um, there's a teacher who's from Berkeley and for them, Berkeley is a world away. It's like where they, you know, they imagine she doesn't shave her armpits. They kind of love her because 
she always has paint on her shoes when she comes to school, which shows that she has interest beyond them and, you know, life beyond the girls. And so I wanted, I had her come to school kind of with one of her more like, um, you know, probably just a worksheet from like an S conference or something she went to, I'm assuming she, you know, I'm guessing she went to like these conferences for self-improvement that were going on at the time. And so she brings one of her worksheets to the girls at this all girls school in San Francisco, which is all the way from Berkeley. And she, um, the, the worksheet is titled things you, who would you tell things to, or basically, you know, basically helping the girls figure out who, what information they can share with other people. And there's a box in the middle that's been crossed out because the teacher from Berkeley has deemed it probably, probably inappropriate to share with these young girls. And it says things you wouldn't even tell yourself. And that's been crossed out. And Yulabi just gets focused on this, on the square, because she's like, what wouldn't I tell myself? And she doesn't know these things yet. And I wanted to show just how, the, again, it's the adult world coming in and trying to expose you to things, but not too much, but show you what you're not seeing. And she just becomes totally fixated on that, on that box. Um, I thought that was just a fun way to show the, what was going on at the time too, with the 80s and the worksheets and the, in the cross section between, yeah. between the adults and the kids and what they, you know, everything the girls think they know, but they don't really know. And then there are these, that allows for mini revelations almost, I, it would almost all the time, like he, he, watching Eula B put together a story as if she's a detective and she's finally learning right. new details about what her, what her life really is. Right. That's true. It's, yeah, there is a detective. You know, in some ways I do, I love reading detective novels and I re love reading Patricia Highsmith because I do like the pacing of that. And so even though this is not necessarily, you know, detective novel I do like the pacing it is about a girl finding herself right so if you think about what's missing she's she's finding herself and finding out the truth you know about her best friend and um, a truth about friendship between friends as well so in that sense it's a it's a, it's a detective novel yeah um and and I do love uh Eula B's own um ideas about reading um mm -hmm. she another teacher at her school is a young man, which mm -hmm. is, that must have been um, interesting in itself well, uh, and, or exciting in itself. For the young, yeah, I wanted to create a teacher, an English teacher who's like a little too young for the, like he's probably, you know, he's in his early 20s. His name is Mr. London. And they're kind of just intrigued by him because there's just not enough of an age difference between him and, and the girls. But he is definitely someone who has very, um, more old fashioned ideas about literature. And so I, I wanted someone who was teaching all these girls you know, at this all girls school, all male writers who are long gone and, and kind of grading them on their perception of them. So I have a scene where Eula B writes, he signs Fanny and Zoe and, um, and Eula B doesn't like it. And she says, she doesn't think, you know, the writer really captured um, captured girls. And so, and he gets, gives her a bad grade on her paper for not understanding girls you know so he's basically grading her on her comprehension of herself and uh, and I just wanted to show a little bit of how I felt that was a really big part of of both growing up then but also I think when I think all the way through the college and even for me for grad school I feel like people were teaching me to read things in a certain way and obviously I'm not saying anything new here that people don't know but I thought I was kind of having fun with that with this character of Mr. London who people you know it kind of makes people believe he may or may not be related to Jack London um, which Yulabi says definitely means he's not related to him. The fact that he lets the illusion just kind of float there without addressing it. But I wanted him to be the character who is um, really just kind of reinforcing the patriarchy, even though he's even though he's a young 
a young teacher um, and he's never signing books by women. And so he exposes her to, or introduces her to The Unbearable Lightness of Being um, by Milan Kundera, which has just come out. And that's when she gets obsessed with the bowler hat and, um, and so forth. And, and, and the um, Kundera is, is such a nice um, relief from um, the assignment she's gotten because at one point Yulabi says she, when she reads The Unbearable Lightness of Being, she feels like she's become a philosopher. Right, right. When you like read a book that makes you think about the world differently, like what's better than that? Right. Or there's different kinds of love. You know, there's like, it's actually funny. My, my habit here. Oh, my, my husband for my birthday gave me like a, a first edition, or like a galley of unbearable lightness of being. And I thought I had it here, but, um, mm -hmm. oh yeah, I do have it here, but I'm not going to take it down because then my whole stack of books will <laughs> fall down. But um, it's, you know, if you get to the ending, it really is about the different kinds of love. And I think that's so intriguing to, to a young girl of that age, that there's not just one kind of love, like, like love can exist on all these different planes. And, um, and so that's what I thought would be a good choice for her. And that's actually something I did research because I, I had to make sure that the book came out, that she would have had access to it. And I was really had that relief of like, oh, good. It came out in 1984. So she, you know, we could have discovered it then. And there are other little, um, cultural references that you snuck in there. Like um, when I was researching Seacliff, again, I, I looked at a list of famous people who once lived there mm -hmm. and I saw Robin Williams and mm -hmm. there, there is a point when Eulabi encounters the guy from Work and Mindy. Right. She goes to a comic store on, on Clement Street and sees um, all these boys kind of hiding out, whispering, and she doesn't know what's going on. And then she realizes they're all watching the guy from Mark and Mindy who's in the corner. So there, yeah, there was a sense too, like, and that, I think that's why the book starts with like Grace Slick and Paul Cantor and, and Carter the Great even going back further. Um, and that was another fun thing to research. So I was like, what, what, you know, what did Carter the Great have inside his house? And just finding yeah. out that he had like a movie theater and had a dining room table that rose up through a trap door. I thought just, again, like this, the inner workings of these houses that you know nothing about, and now you can Google them. But the, you know, at the time, um, you probably just heard that from people, right? You probably heard what was going on in someone's house, and that was all rumor, and there was no way to really verify it. The same way there is there is now from like a real estate, you know, listing on a website or something. Um, but there was a sense of like of these different cultural icons from different periods of the past, and that's why I put those those um, names in or references to them, even if I don't put them, identify them by name. And, and and it's true that if you don't have a website to check um, what's going on in the houses, it's mm -hmm. so much easier to create urban legends and more. <laughs> much easier, yeah. <laughs> no, I, yeah, it's so much easier. And and I do feel like I had that experience as a kid, knowing different stories about different neighbors. Where did you grow up? But uh, New Jersey, so okay. yeah. uh, in a suburb. Mm -hmm. But like that's I've where. Seen. The divorced lady lives, right. you know, like that. Right. Yeah, um, and it's always funny too. If I always think about giving directions to someone, like how to find something, my reference was, you know, would probably only be understood by people who knew me at a certain age. You know, I couldn't tell recent friends, like, oh, turn, you know, go left where the house burnt down, go right where we thought there was a cult leader, you know, mm -hmm. was, you know just. <laughs> um, yeah, it's very different. I love that. Will you tell me what you've been reading lately? Um, what I've been reading lately, I've been listening to Middlemarch because I 
Mm. I never read it in college. It was, you know, I took a book in 20th century, um, a marriage in the novel, and I never read Middlemarch, and I always felt slightly guilty about it. And so I'm listening to a great audio recording of it, and I'm really, really enjoying it. Um, I just read, a, listened to a line a couple of days ago I love where they talk about, talks about how even souls have complexions and so what looks good on one person doesn't look good on another. I just love that line. Um, what else am I reading? I'm reading um, a book that hasn't come out yet. Um, it was sent to me, like a galley was sent to me called True Biz that I really am enjoying. Oh, Sarah Novick. Yeah, exactly. I'm really enjoying that book. Um, and what else am I reading? I'm reading, I have three books right now. I'm reading Tessa Hadley because I was just reading the um, Henry Award stories um, selected by um, Chimamanda Adichie, and I really one story I really I love all the stories actually, but um, I read a story by Tessa Hadley in there that I hadn't um, and I hadn't read Tessa Hadley before, so now I'm kind of on a Tessa Hadley kick and reading reading her as well. I'm reading I always read like three books at once, so I have I a lot that. of books. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. And before we go, would you mind talking a little bit about the Believer? Oh sure. So the I just like it broke my heart to learn that it, it would be shutting down. Um, the Believer magazine was started in two thousand and three by um, by Heidi Julitz at the park and and me and we all went to um, we all went to graduate school together. That's where we first um, first met. And we after school was over, we went out into the the real world. Uh, we kind of missed the conversations and dialogues that you have when you're with a bunch of people who are all trying to do the same thing, namely create fiction. Um, or, you know, nonfiction, or just create literature in some way and talk about books all the time. And so we wanted a format where we could continue to do that with a wider audience, namely the writers who are writing for The Believer and the readers who were corresponding with us. So um, that was started in 2003. And in 2000, around 2017, 2018, so after 15 years of putting the magazine, um, we, which is basically, it wasn't just book reviews, it was also interviews with Everyone from artists, philosophers, writers, um, and some, you know, always, we always had like a fun interview there as well, you know, with like a, you know, you know, character actor from a film or, um, you know, anyway, I don't want to go into too many specifics, but, um, or ninjas, we had a, <laughs> ninjas, we, um, so we had, um, we um, sold it to the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, Black Mountain Institute, and so they did a great job, really loved the job they've done the past couple of years. Um, putting out the magazine it's beautiful and uh, we just learned last week that they will uh, no longer be publishing it so that's that's where things stand right now but yes I was very sad and very nostalgic this weekend it was a really rainy stormy weekend in San Francisco and um, I was just looking at my old believers and feeling very nostalgic for that time period and for all the incredible writers and readers I got to meet through through the magazine because um, it really did feel like a dialogue um, that we were having and I feel very lucky to have been part of it for so many years so thanks for asking yeah thank you for for creating it and had so many great conversations over the years um this has been wonderful Vendela. is there is there anything else that i haven't addressed that you'd like to talk <laughs> no that's great thank maris it's nice to see you and talk with Me you too. to you and to the miami book fair and um yeah thank you so much yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.